because it improves welfare, or as Adam Smith put it, the wealth of nations. Centuries of experience, not just theory, have confirmed that view. Yet the gap between evidence and scholarship on the one hand and the public debate on the other has grown much wider in recent years. Free trade has come under attack from an assortment of critics, uh, including some powerful ones, not the least of which are in the United States, President Trump, whose protectionist views are well known and have been uh, long held, unashamedly calls himself tariff man. The United States has imposed tariffs on our most important uh, trading partners and allies in Europe, North America, and Asia, and has pulled out of trade agreements or threatened to do so, including the World Trade Organization itself. Whatever one may think about the deficiencies of current trade arrangements, history speaks with a single voice about uh, what a return to protectionism uh, would be. It would be a major mistake. In some developing countries, too, uh, industrial policy and protection is making somewhat of a, a comeback, arguments in favor of those kinds of policies. India, under Prime Minister Modi, for example, has increased subsidies and impose tariffs on hundreds of goods, uh, many of which rise above 50%. Now, this development is particularly troubling since developing countries arguably have been the ones that have most benefited from free trade. In this era of globalization, billions of people have been lifted out of poverty, something that's unprecedented in its scope and its speed in world history. I don't think that we're returning to the bad old days of extreme protectionism in developing countries, but it is troubling to hear a resuscitation of arguments that we thought were defeated long ago. For example, on the need for infant industry protection or the subsidization of strategic sectors. Free trade success stories like Taiwan and uh, South Korea are being held up as examples of enlightened interventionism and managed as opposed to free trade. That's why I'm pleased uh, to host two speakers today who are among uh, those who have done the most in the world, anywhere in the world over the uh, many years, to show the benefits of free trade, especially to developing countries. I'll begin by introducing Arvind Panagaria, and, and later we'll introduce Ann Krieger. Uh, Arvind Panagaria is the author of this book, Free Trade and Prosperity, which is the first full-scale defense of free trade and critiques of critiques of free trade that there is, especially with a focus on the developing world. Professor Panagaria is a professor of economics and the Jagdish Bhagwati Professor of Indian Political Economy at Columbia University. From 2015 to 2017, he served in the cabinet of Prime Minister Modi in India as the vice chairman of the National Institution for Transforming India. Previously, he has been the chief economist of the Asian Development Bank. Uh, he's uh, taught at the University of Maryland. He has worked at the World Bank, with the World Bank, the IMF, the United Nations Council on Trade and Development. He's the author of more than 15 books, 
including India, the Emerging Giant, and Why Growth Matters. He is widely published in the leading academic journals and in uh, the most important newspapers in the world. Please help me welcome Professor Panagaria. Uh, thank you, Ian, for that very generous introduction. Uh, thanks, thank you all also for being here. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me to be here. Uh, you know, Professor Krieger uh, uh, is, uh, in a sense, you know, for us, for my generation of trade economists, is uh, one of the teachers. Uh, so I really see myself more as a pupil uh, of uh, <laughs> Professor Krieger uh, rather than being one of the two. Um, and, and I'm really grateful that she's going to be commenting on the book today. Um, Ian mentioned about you know, President Trump calling himself the king of tariffs, uh, <laughs> but uh, he's quite symmetric, actually, because uh, uh, there has been a resurgence of protection in uh, India also, or tariff man, right? He calls himself tariff man. But uh, um, uh, symmetrically, you know, uh, India has, uh, in the last two years, raised many of its tariffs. And so he also calls India the king of tariffs. Uh, and, and his most famous kind of uh, repeated uh, example he cites is the Harley-Davidson on which India used to have 100% tariff and after some pressure dropped it to 50%. And uh, uh, of course, that really has not gone very far uh, in, in satisfying the United States. Um, but let me uh, you know, turn to the book, really. Uh, but the context uh, clearly Ian has set out that you know, what we are seeing is a bit of a resurgence of protection. Uh, and I completely agree with him that, that, that it is not you know, a protection in the sense uh, uh, that it, it, it used to be, particularly in the developing world. Um, but uh, uh, it is time. To, to take a fresh look, and I'm really glad there has been one another book, at least on the United States, uh, that has come out from Doug Irwin very recently, uh, which takes the full historical uh, look at uh, the United States trade policy uh, from uh, the perspective of uh, a, a free trade advocate. Uh, this book, on the other hand, focuses exclusively on the developing countries. And it is in this sense that I make the claim, uh, I hope justifiably, that this is really the first full-scale defense of free trade uh, with the developing countries uh, at its center. Uh, now, uh, in, in writing the book, uh, I was very much influenced uh, by authors who had actually written earlier, some of the, very, some of the classics, actually, uh, who had written in the context of other countries. And, and two of these were the uh, uh, Frederick Bastiat of his economic sophisms, uh, and uh, the other one being Protection and Free Trade by Henry George. And these were, of course, you know, the books written uh, 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 more than 100 years ago. Uh, but uh, uh, that's the, the sort of defense that I had in mind. And so uh, at least part of the book is also a rhetorical, sort of it takes on to all the critics and one by one tries to demolish their critiques. Um, uh, but it, but it does more, a lot more than that. Uh, so, so in this sense, it also goes uh, uh, a bit farther because we have also come f much farther in terms of developing uh, theories and empirical evidence in international trade. So there is also a large section on the conceptual uh, 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 foundations of why trade uh, is, is beneficial. Uh, uh, and, and in particular, 
there is also a, a large bit of empirical evidence section, well, several empirical evidence sections uh, which uh, address uh, uh, why for the developing countries in particular, uh, 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 freeing up trade uh, is, is beneficial. Uh, and I argue here in the book that you know, for in the, when it comes to the context of the developing countries, uh, speaking only on the gains from trade is not sufficient. You know, these are gains from more efficient exchange or gains from more efficient specialization in production. Uh, but uh, uh, those are just not sufficient, usually politically, I think, to, to uh, persuade the policymakers in, in the developing countries to, to uh, 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 knocking down protection. Uh, what one really needs is to be able to argue to them that uh, uh, not only uh, does freer trade, trade confer these efficiency gains, but more importantly, it fundamentally impacts the rate of growth. Now, there are theories there. Theories are ambivalent on, on uh, how trade impacts uh, uh, growth, uh, as they are, in fact, with respect to any other policy. Um, all the endogenous growth models, you know, depending on how you model these things, you can show growth rate might rise or fall. But, but ultimately, the view taken is that the question is, is truly empirical. Uh, and, and so the book spends a good bit of time uh, 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 mastering the evidence that now exists actually and and showing that look you know we now uh, can with reasonable confidence argue that uh, 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 there is even causal effect of trade uh, uh, freeing up of trade on uh, 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 the rate of growth what i want to do however uh, for my presentation is to step back a little bit and and uh, take take a historical kind of perspective uh, and uh, here, if one starts after the Second World War, there's an interesting kind of contrast uh, uh, as far as the uh, thinking on trade policy is concerned with respect to the developed countries and the developing countries. So you know that you know, 19, the, the, uh, uh, alongside the World Bank and the uh, International Monetary Fund, which were part of the Bretton Woods Agreement, there was the negotiation for the International Trade Organization. Uh, although international trade organization was still born, uh, the general agreement on tariffs and trade was signed. Uh, but the thinking clearly was at the time that as far as the developed countries were concerned, the United States, Europe, Japan, Canada, trade needed to be liberalized. That post-war reconstruction would be greatly uh, uh, facilitated by this liberalization, and the United States gave lead uh, uh, in, in, in that context uh, uh, got this, uh, you know, uh, although international trade organization could not be ratified, the GATT became the vehicle through which the United States led the uh, developed countries into a, a number of different rounds of uh, trade negotiations to open up trade. But as far as the developing countries were concerned around this time, if we talk in the 1950s, um, until even you know, the entire 1960s, the dominant view was that developing countries needed protection that free trade was not going to serve them well, and I'll explain why, but that was the dominant thinking. It was not just the policymakers who thought that way, but most economists, in fact, and, and some of whom later on became very kind of uh, vocal advocates of free trade, also thought uh, at the time that protection was quite justified in the case of the developing countries. Uh, uh, Ian Little, who really led one of the very first studies which began to change the, uh, this kind of conventional uh, wisdom in favor of free trade. Uh, and this was the 
the OECD project that he had led in 1970. But in 1960, when he visited India and came back, he wrote very clearly that, well, India is choosing to do import substitution, and that seems to be the right policy to do. You know where the market is. You know what to produce. Uh, uh, and risk is not there. Whereas export markets, you don't know there is risk and so forth. Uh, so I mean, that is a very good example. There's a very telling example of somebody who eventually was one of the uh, uh, earliest advocates of uh, free trade policies and a very unequivocal one. Uh, uh, at some point, you know, at, till at least 1960, we have from his writings uh, thought that uh, protection was needed. Now, where this thinking came from was the following, that economists generally thought in terms of, uh, and this is a clarification uh, 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 that would come, you know, much later from Professor Krieger in 1997 uh, AEA presidential address, but the way it was thought in those days was that, look, you know, uh, uh, there is industry and there is primary products. Developing countries have the comparative advantage in primary products. But both income and price elasticities are very low for the primary products. So what will happen over time is that the terms of trade uh, will move against the uh, primary, product, pro primary products. Both because as incomes rise, demand will shift in the industrial countries towards industrial products and away from primary products. Uh, but also, because the price elasticity was low, any efforts to raise exports by the developing countries themselves through increased productivity or increased investment in primary products uh, would be frustrated. Those efforts will be frustrated because the low price elasticity meant that the price will uh, 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 decline very dramatically, and so the export revenues we are going to generate would, in fact, be not higher but lower. Uh, and that led the economists to think that, look, you know, that therefore primary products could not serve, or primary product exports could not serve as the engine of growth. And so if you really then want to grow, what do you do? You industrialize, uh, but of course you, have, uh, uh, you are the importer of those products and therefore you need to do import substitution. And this is where also then to give, give some sort of intellectual legitimacy uh, to uh, protection uh, for industry, the infant industry argument was invoked. And, and this is a period during which suddenly infant industry argument, both in the academic literature but also in policy literature, be becomes prominent. Uh, so my book takes apart this argument. Uh, I argue, I, I show actually, not argue, but that logically you really can't make a case for infant industry protection. The, you know, the, the prevalent view even today is that, well, as long as you know, there are some external learning by doing type of economies of scale, uh, a case a logical case can, in fact, be made. I argue that you cannot. Uh, only way you do it is practically by assuming it, by saying that, you know, uh, if I produce today, then just the mere act of my production will lower your cost of production tomorrow. That is the assumption you have to make. If you are willing to follow that sort of assumption, then you can get it. But, you know, as long as this externality is connected to some sort of uh, uh, worker training or if it is uh, connected to some sort of innovation uh, on which the firm has to invest some money and so forth, as long as this externality is not so automatic that it happens regardless, you know, purely by my act of production today for you uh, tomorrow, as long as that's not the kind of uh, uh, assumption you're making uh, and you specify the microeconomic foundations of where this externality is coming from, the infant industry argument actually collapses. It's, it simply logically does not exist. Um, 
but uh, uh, coming back to the historical uh, uh, perspective, you know, so when we, uh, 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 early 1960s, as we arrive, some of the countries sort of move away from this uh, uh, conventional wisdom as it existed then. Uh, and these are four Asian tigers. Well, uh, Hong Kong actually was always free trader. Uh, uh, it never had any protection. But South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore had small bits of protection, uh, some import substitution they had done and all. Uh, that was the model in the 1950s, particularly for both Taiwan and South Korea. But by early 1960s, they sort of were confronted with this uh, 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 question uh, that you know they had they had done the import substitution in labor-intensive products. Now, should they actually go further deeper and therefore start protecting also the capital-intensive goods, or should they turn to the export markets? And they chose the latter. So they decided that you know rather than go further deeper into import substitution, uh, let us go for the export markets. And uh, uh, so the entire policy framework from the late 50s onwards, actually in both Taiwan and South Korea, began to shift around uh, in favor of export orientation. Uh, and the response was immediate and quite phenomenal. Actually, both countries you know, launched themselves into uh, about 9 to 10% growth rates uh, in the 60s, uh, which continued into 70s and so forth. Uh, and, and that is what uh, was eventually picked up by the economists. The one study that OECD one led by uh, uh, in Little, uh, first, that was the first. Then there was a Bhagwati Krieger study by NBER also in the 1970s. And the third one from the World Bank led by Bela Balasa. So the, the, the four really are, are, are the key kind of players in this. Uh, 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 little uh, uh, Scott and Skitowski, that was its co-authored uh, study, but really led by in Little, Bhagwati and Krieger, and Bela Balasa. Those are the studies that you know, then completely flipped the conventional wisdom. <laughs> the economists sort of very quickly switched around and felt you know, nothing beats then the actual serious evidence. Uh, uh, and so uh, that wisdom changed, developing it, 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 the, the, the primacy of free trade uh, for the developing countries was also uh, became, began to gain uh, intellectual currency. Uh, and that led, of course, around this time also, and uh, I, I imagine Bela Balasa was one of the very influential figures there that the World Bank and also the International Monetary Fund, where, uh, uh, and of course, Krieger also came in in the 1980s at, 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 the, at the bank. So these institutions then, and also political change, Ronald Reagan became the president who uh, believed firmly in free trade. And so all those factors came together and, and, and there was a big push for, for freer trade in the developing countries. Uh, now that, 1980s became a bit controversial, but from my perspective, I think the biggest impact that happened of the pushing of the uh, 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 outward-oriented policies by the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund in the 1980s was that eventually there was a lot of intellectual learning in the developing countries themselves. And by 1990s, many developing countries, uh, it happened faster in China, but in other developing countries also, the liberal trade policies gained acceptance. And, 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 and then this liberalization came to be owned by the countries. So 1980s ended up being a wash. Uh, a lot of the, uh, uh, and, and, and to some degree, you know, liberalization got a bit of a bad name there during that decade. This is also the decade during which now a, 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 a backlash happens. 
uh, intellectually, you have uh, two political scientists, Alice Amsden and Robert Wade, who write very influential books. Uh, uh, Amsden on uh, Asian, uh, on, on uh, really focused South Korea, and Robert Wade on Taiwan. Uh, and this is later followed in the 1990s by influential writings by Danny Roderick, uh, after that in the 2000s by Ha Jun Chang, who all kind of reinterpret the Asian experience as being one driven by selective protectionism and industrial policy. And so there's a big, you know, uh, this is completely, uh, uh, so, so th th these authors came to be identified at least at some point in the, in the literature as the revisionists. That, that, that they were going back to this, this protectionist view that had prevailed in, in the 50s and 60s. And, and this is where I think a lot of the arguments got made which, which uh, continue to be used till today by many countries who want to do protection. And I'll take just five minutes to, to quickly uh, 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 take on some of these arguments. Uh, and, and I'll take the context largely of South Korea to, to rebut why uh, these arguments are, in fact, uh, even empirically incorrect arguments. So one of the key ones that is made is that uh, it was not liberalization or outward orientation by South Korea that led to its growth uh, uh, shifting to 8 to 10 percent, but it was the industrial policy and selective protection. Now, what is very interesting is uh, that these people, when they talk about industrial policy, they are referring to the period that begins in 1973. Because if you look at an, the prior decade, 1963 to 1973, Korea had grown something over 9%, not quite to 10, but over 9%. It had grown annually. This is the period during which the wages also simultaneously were rising about 8 to 10% a year. Uh, is also a period during which a lot of uh, transformation happened with the workforce moving out of agriculture into industry and services. So huge amount of transformation of Korea happened during this one decade. Uh, it is quite phenomenal and breathtaking how rapidly that transformation was. But this was a period during which there was no industrial policies in the name. You know, there are some industries, you know, like petrochemicals or uh, fertilizer, but these were very different objectives, not developmental objectives, meaning, you know, it's more had to do with agriculture or energy, uh, uh, self-sufficiency and so forth. But bulk of the policy really was neutral with respect to different products. And, and uh, uh, one of the good pieces of evidence of that is that, you know, uh, products that were never ever exported by Korea and therefore could not have been the subject of uh, 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 industrial policy targeting uh, came up and wigs and, and human hair, uh, non-existent uh, in, uh, in, in the export basket of Korea till 1963. They appear for the first time in 1964. By some 1972 or so, they are about 10% of the Korean exports. Uh, so. You know, this was a, and, and Larry Westfall, who really studied the Korea in those days uh, 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 in, in, in great detail, actually, uh, he was at the World Bank. Uh, and his calculations are that, you know, if you combine what, what import protection is doing and what export orientation, export subsidies are doing, if you take the overall, you know, there was probably a marginal kind of uh, 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 bias in favor of exports, uh, not a huge one. So roughly, it was close to, you know, meaning that. If all the interventions that existed were to be withdrawn, uh, you'd be more or less where free trade would have taken you. So that is uh, his, his conclusion. 
Now, industrial policy begins, this is called the heavy and chemical industry drive, that begins in Korea in 1973. Uh, and growth rate in the following decade falls. It goes down from being more than 9% to below 7%, so it's, you know, 6, 6.5%. So it is not as though during the period of industrial policy, Korea experienced a greater uh, uh, growth. Actually, it, growth rate, in fact, fell. And by the end of this period, things got bad enough that in the end, there was a macroeconomic uh, uh, crisis or instability, really, which finally led Korea to get out of the HCL or heavy and chemical industry drive uh, and revert back to the neutral policies. And then if you go back to 1982 onwards, another decade, uh, you return to about 9 to 10% growth. So uh, quite clearly, uh, 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 when industrial policy was put in place, now sometimes like Hajun Cheng would argue that, oh, but you know, today the industries that Korea protected in the 1970s are very successful industries. That's a case of post hoc fallacy. You know, I mean, <laughs> to, to say that because protection was given then, today these industries are flourishing. Uh, is, it requires a leap of faith. I mean, you've got to actually show that uh, the, the fact that uh, this uh, industry policy and, and, and protection were provided, uh, the, the benefit from that was higher than the cost of it. I mean, you've got to show that, but you know, just because they become successful, because eventually Korea was becoming from a labor abundant to a capital abundant country, and that would have necessarily happened eventually. So maybe you know, the, the protection or industrial policy speeded up some of that adjustment, uh, but one has to take into account the cost of that adjustment also. Then there is also an argument that Danny Roderick makes, who says that, well, you know, if you look at the Korean uh, trade data, uh, growth accelerated before the exports actually accelerated. Uh, and here again, uh, this is something that as an empirical fact has been accepted, but I look back at all the evidence, and it turns out that really the target, meaning you know, the object of the opening up and policies of Korea were the manufacturers. And so you really have to go back and look at the manufacturers' exports. So the policy had begun to turn towards the you know, late 1950s and early 1960s, more happened. Uh, and that process continued. And, and if you look at that, uh, the manufacturers' exports, they grew phenomenally starting from 1961 already. So 1961 to 1964, average growth rate is more than 40% of manufacturers. And from 20-some percent, uh, the manufacturers' exports become more than 60% by 1964. So there's a huge, you know, the, the, in the total what happens is that the agricultural exports are not doing so well, uh, which to some degree was a reason to turn outward oriented on the manufacturers. Uh, and therefore, uh, the total kind of looks a little uh, distorted because of the agricultural exports, uh, whose weight initially in the 19, uh, 1961 was more than 60% in the first place. So uh, that also actually turns out to be a false argument. Uh, um, then. There is also the argument that Danny Roderick makes that oh, initially the exports were only 5% of the uh, 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 GDP, and uh, it's like tail wagging the dog. How can so small a share of exports lead to such uh, uh, export expansion or such GDP expansion? And that, again, I think is a wrong analysis because you know, in, in the end, the policy works not only on exports. When you're opening up, it is working on the entire export sector. Uh, including the products that are not even exported today. 
uh, and which can actually become export, exports tomorrow. So uh, it, it, it really is not that, that figure one is looking at, you know, the average figure, which is the share of exports in the GDP, is the wrong figure to look at. It, it ultimately is that, you know, how is the export sector itself? And that's, of course, uh, is, is, is a very large sector. Last one I'll take, you know, also, uh, uh, which is repeatedly claimed, you know, same for in, in the context even of India and China, which later on, uh, liberalized, and I didn't talk about, but China starting in 1980 and India 1991, and both two, the two largest, by far the largest countries in the world, uh, became outward oriented, and both actually benefited in a big time. There are also the arguments that they that are made by people like uh, uh, Danny Roderick and Hajun Chang uh, is that well, you know, it's because they did not go all the way to free trade. Uh, now, that also is an unverifiable uh, uh, argument that is made. But still, some verification can be done. Because go back to China. In China in 1980s already grew at 10%. Now, the question is that, well, if it was protectionism, the fact that China had not opened all the way was the reason for this 10% growth to have occurred, then for the future, the good policy for China would have been to stay put or even maybe raise the protection a little bit on the margin, right? Because it's, if your theory is, if your argument is that protection is what is doing it uh, 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 and not going to free trade, then for sure further free trade ought to lower your uh, growth rate. But China, in fact, opened. I mean, it continued to liberalize in the 1990s. and 2001, it entered the WTO. And liberalized further, and the growth rate of about 10% uh, continued to be maintained. Uh, and we know, actually, and this is documented, so there are case studies of all these countries, you know, the, the, the Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, uh, Taiwan, uh, South Korea, India, China, uh, and then there's one chapter which deals with a lot of the other countries in Africa and Latin America as well. Uh, but uh, 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 in the end, the countries continue to open, particularly China, you know. So it's not, uh, if the interpretation really is that uh, oh, because they did not open up all the way, they grew so well, uh, it should be the case that, you know, once you reach the 10%, uh, further opening should have hurt you. It didn't. Uh, uh, in fact, the growth rate was sustained precisely because the countries continued to open up. So uh, 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 that is the sort of some flavor of the book, uh, 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 and I would conclude there. Uh, thanks again very much. Thank you, Arvind. As, uh, as Arvind mentioned, our next uh, speaker who will comment on, on the book is Anne Krieger. And she really was one of the people in the, one of the handful of people, four or five uh, scholars in the 1970s that uh, through her research and scholarship really did flip the conventional wisdom in the developing world and among scholars about the wisdom of protectionism in poor countries. She is the se a senior research professor of international economics at the School of Advanced International Studies at the Johns Hopkins University. She's also a senior fellow of the Center for International Development at Stanford uh, University, where she's a professor of sciences and humanities in the economics department. Ann uh, Krieger has been the first deputy managing director of the International Monetary Fund. She's taught at Stanford and Duke universities. She was, from the early to the mid-1980s, the vice president of economics and research at the World Bank. And because of the work she did there with some of our other colleagues, like Deepak Lal, uh, there was a big influence 
in the direction of market-oriented uh, policies there and uh, eventually around the world. Uh, Professor Krieger is a distinguished fellow and past president of the American Economic Association. She's a senior research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a member of the National Academies of Science. She's widely published, has published numerous books and articles on India, South Korea, Turkey, and other uh, issues. Please help me welcome Ann Krieger. We'll go back or front. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation, and it gave me an early chance to read Arvind's book. Uh, on the other hand, they made a mistake because the person who discusses it is supposed to be a bit of a critic, and I'm not. Uh, it's a good book. It's worth a read. It is a systematic account of what happened and why opening is important. And unfortunately, uh, it needs to be read in the United States today as well as elsewhere. Uh, because of what's going on. Unfortunately, that's not my topic of discussion today. I certainly agree with the bottom line. I'm, I'm going to go through some of the highlights that I think are important I agree with, and then I'll pick a few nitpicks at the end, but they are really nitpicks. Uh, I do agree with the bottom line. Openness is clearly important. It's important for the efficiency reasons that Arvind mentioned. It's important, and it has been very important in developing countries because many of them, especially when they were poor, had very small markets. And having protection for domestic industry meant it basically gave industries, if not monopoly positions, oligopoly or something close to it. And when that happens, the incentives for uh, productivity uh, growth and for doing things efficiently diminish greatly, and the system gets balled up that way too. Uh, obviously, opening economies do better in terms of the exchange of ideas and using ideas. Uh, that, once again, is demonstrated, I think, by the uh, experience of countries that didn't do it. But I think some of the things that are neglected and almost equally, if not more important, are that an open economy, in a sense, takes away a lot of scope for government control. A government simply cannot have an open economy model and then go intervening directly to help this firm or that firm or the other firm. It's just much more difficult to do. Uh, many years ago when I was working in India, uh, one of the rumors that went around was that Sears Roebuck had been in India. They discovered the beautiful Kashmiri inlaid tables, which were lovely things. And they wanted, went to the, somebody in the appropriate ministry and ordered 50,000 of the things a month. Whereupon the ministry just looked at them and said, we can't do that. We could do maybe 25, 50,000 versus 25. Uh, the government simply had no concept of what was involved, no way of doing it. That happened item after item. Uh, on the import side, once again, a famous story in India had to do with when uh, there was, India was exporting tea. And Germany was uh, importing it, among others. And the German, a German importer inquired as to whether the tea exporter could t produce the tea bags and the bag tea in India, because labor was cheap and that would be easier for them. And so, of course, uh, the, the uh, Indian producer went to uh, the, the appropriate authorities in the government and said, I want to import tea bag paper. And he specified white. Well, the first thing he had to do was get a letter from all the Indian companies that produced paper saying they couldn't do it to the quality needed. And so he took six or eight months to do that. But when he got those letters, many of them had said, well, we could do it, of course, in brown paper, but not white paper. Whereupon came the response from the government. Let the foreigners learn to like brown, white brown paper. 
Not, needless to say, uh, there was no contract for teabagging in India at that time. And the trouble was, of course, that the government thought they could control foreigners, which you can't. You have trouble enough to control your own country without that. And it seems to me that the political clout that foreigners then get uh, is something that's important in the whole thing. Uh, finally, uh, I think that trade, free open trade itself encourages other good policies. Uh, Arvind mentioned the mistake that the, the Koreans made in 1973 with the heavy and chemical industry drive. As it happened, I was invited uh, by the government of Korea to come and did so in 1981 when they had figured out what a total disaster it was. And they wanted what they called a wise men's committee to, to show a commission to show how it should be shut down. It was such a disaster that about 15 years after that, when the Korea Development Institute was asked by the government to do a book on the history of, of the success of the, the history of economic policy and economic output in Korea since 1950s. The government would not itself release the information on the heavy and chemical industry drive. It was such a disaster that they kept the information private. It was really bad. Uh, even though they themselves were publishing the book, and of course the Koreans did reverse it. But th that in turn had come about uh, for a variety of reasons I won't get into. But the other good policy, namely the export orientation or the outer orientation, the open economy, prevented the government from, uh, from uh, keeping on with something that would have been such a disastrous policy. It really was. Yes, some things happened years and years later, but I visited a ball, ball bearing factory which had come in under the heavy chemical industry drive in 1982, uh, which was the cleanest factory you've ever seen. And making ball bearings is not a clean operation. Uh, oil and dust and stuff like that. And I could see about three workers in a huge, what must have been 10 football stadium type uh, size, about three or four workers. And so I finally asked, uh, well, uh, at what percentage capacity is this factory operating? To which the answer was, well, 2%, one shift, two days a week. All of that investment. Now, later on, in the, you know, late when capital was cheaper, they learned more they could do it cheaply, but not in the 1980s. And it was wasted capital for 30 years that could have gone into something that would have gotten to them to the point when they could have done it, done it uh, sooner. Anyway, I'm agreeing with Arvin, not disagreeing. I'm just saying he has, hadn't made the case strongly enough. Uh, let, me, let me just continue. I think tariffs <clears throat> protection do the opposite, because what they do is they enable industry-specific protection. Now, if you think about it, I, I, oh, I do, okay, I'm beginning to disagree with Arvind a bit. I think he's too kind to the industry argument. If you think about it for a minute, it's all fine and good. If we knew with certainty that such and such an industry will be growing at such and such a rate and be able to sell at such and such a price and the rest of the world will be fine and they'll take our goods 10 years from now. And if we knew with certainty that we could remove the protection 10 years from now, it might work. But that's not the way it works. First off, we don't know. Businessmen themselves in private enterprise start businesses that sometimes fail, believe it or not. And part of the beauty of the market is that the one who takes the risk is the one who gets the reward or pays the penalty, not, the, not you, the taxpayer, when there's a mistake. And I think that's terribly important. But more than that, there's uncertainty. And more than that, once infant industry is established, infant industries have much more of a tendency to establish their factories in the capital than most other activities. Why? Well, because laying off a lot of workers in the capital is not a very good idea. They can demonstrate all too easily. The result of which is uh, that infant industry, even among the ones that are more successful, and there aren't too many for a reason I'll come to in a minute, but the ones that do it, uh, basically the trouble is that they don't ever stop being infants. They never grow up. 
Because, why do they need to? They've got protection. And if indeed the idea is get rid of protection, oh, but all those workers will demonstrate, they'll go and strike, they'll lose their jobs, and so on and so forth. So with all of that, uh, the question is why do it in the first place when you can't get rid of it when it starts, and when you don't know what will work and what won't work. And we've had plenty of startups. Uh, no, now, that doesn't prove that if you put on widespread protection as India did, that out of the 5,000 or whatever industries spring up, that one or two or five or 10 won't be efficient. They will. But once a company has protection, uh, why is it they're going to work so hard to become more productive? And entering the export market is going to be tough, and why should they do that when they've already got the nice, comfortable domestic market? I actually had a friend in graduate school who went home to India, and he looked at the import list very carefully, picked off what was not produced domestically, figured out what his factory could produce. When he got to supply the domestic market, seemed to have reasonable costs. Why don't you export? The answer is very simple. Oh, I'm going to find another one. And he just went and picked things off the import list to produce for the domestic market. Are you surprised? I'm not. Anyway, quantitative restrictions are even worse. <clears throat> They're worse because you can do it company by company, or you find some silly formula that doesn't work. India put out a regulation because they had quantitative restrictions that the import license should be, should be allocated in proportion to the industry's capacity. So when there were four tire firms, and one had 30% of the capacity, it should get 30% of the licenses for the imports of rubber, right? Well, guess what happened? Everybody increased their capacity, even though they already had excess capacity, because more capacity meant you either gained or at least you didn't lose your share. So you got great excess capacity. If you don't do it that way, then you run the risk, as everybody knows, of favoritism among various groups and various influential people. It's known as crony capitalism. And it's a very bad deal, and it happens all the time under QIs. They're one of the most potent ways that the government can give out goodies to itself or to the people who will give it back to them in ways that are not transparent enough for people to see. And so it was plagued with that too, as had Korea been to some extent in the 1950s. Uh, so with that, we go on. Uh, but as I said, I really think the infant industry argument has been way overrated. Bob Baldwin did a wonderful study and gave some of the good reasons why not. And Arvind has given more, but I think it's even worse than that. I think they're less, how do you ever know which they will be? Yes, if you pick off 100, you'll be likely to hit one or two. But that doesn't mean you should do all 100. And if you don't, which, how do you get it right? Okay, I think Arvind is also so much too kind to Amston, Wade, and Roderick. Uh, First off, what that outer orientation did, and the first thing that had to be done was get a uniform exchange rate, which had not happened in Korea until 1958. When they moved policies, as they did starting then, what they did was they created policies so that anybody who exported was entitled to. And how much entitlement were they? Depended on the number of dollars of exports. It was a perfectly objective external test as to who should get what. It was nothing uh, that had to do with where a bureaucrat could do it. Was there industrial policy in the sense that Roderick thinks? No. Was there a monthly meeting between President Park and the business leaders? Yes. What Were there every year statements as to what they hoped to achieve? Yes. Why? Well, because they wanted to get the infrastructure right. But interestingly enough, all the producers fought for low targets for their industry, and the bureaucrats fought with them against the president. The president wanted higher targets for everything, bureaucrats slower, and business didn't want. Why? Because if they didn't meet a target, there'd be a problem. Okay? And the whole art of Korean planning was to sort of work out how much you could produce and what infrastructure, ports, 
railroads, power, and so on, you'd need for it. And on the whole, they did pretty well. And when they made mistakes, President Park at his monthly meetings would say, how come we didn't meet this target? To which the answer would be, well, uh, my imports were held up because of port, it, too, too little port capacity, so they had to wait a, month, a week before they got unloaded, etc. The problems came up quickly. They were reported to him. The bureaucrats and the businessmen were there. And with that, you got something that, yes, it was plenty, but it was plenty, mostly infrastructure. And it was not, we want this industry or that, until in 1973, they thought they'd gotten far enough that they could go for the heavy industries. And so the heavy chemical industry initiative started until they discovered that was a mistake seven years later. So there was something of a sequence to that and so on. It seems to me that the argument that uh, this was industrial policy, there's even a very good article uh, by some Japanese scholars showing that Miti, the allegedly powerful Japanese planning organization, had systematically helped the losers, not the winners. Even for Japan, it didn't work. And the stories about industrial capacity, industrial uh, policy, in my view, are just simply mistaken. Okay. Uh, it seems to me that Taiwan started a little before Arvind said. Uh, T.C. Liu, who was a very good trade economist at the University of Cornell University, was called back to Taiwan. And Taiwanese policy started, changes started. And by 1960, Taiwan had already had about five years of export growth and so on and so forth. They were ahead of Korea. South Korea came later. And the post-war post period from 53 to 60 was really reconstruction that was very bad, badly bungled with heavy exchange controls, multiple exchange rates, and numerous other problems. I once went, was in Korea and was invited to a lunch. And the economic team uh, were there, just the finance minister and a couple of others, the Bank of Korea president, and so on and so forth. And they said, well, we just got back from uh, Taiwan. And I, my question was, well, how was it? Of course, you know, that's the first thing you ask. Whereupon the first part of the answer is, well, we got sick and came back early. And I mean, what happened here? This sounds like a diplomatic mess. Well, why do we, what happened? Well, you know how we got 9% growth last year? They got 11 you know how we got inflation down to 1.5% last year? They got it down to half a percent. You know how our exports boomed for 20%? Theirs went 25. Taiwan beat us on every front last year. We were just sick. We had to come home and find out what we were doing wrong. And those two economies, the economic policymakers watched each other like hawks. I could get numbers more quickly from a Taiwanese economist on Korea than I could from a Korean economist. They knew everything each other was doing, and they knew why, and they knew how. And I could even tell you all the mistakes that Korea made uh, along the way in the 1960s in their trade policy, because I learned it from the Taiwanese, and vice versa. Uh, having competition helps, even in, among countries as well as among uh, particular entities. So basically, uh, I think that the interventions, because they were uniform and across the board, and because, as Arvind said, they were pretty much the same as a level playing field for import substitution and so on, were much more effective even, uh, you know, and less harmful than Arvind, just to say in his book. I think that Taiwan coming early was a, a leader, and that made a difference in thinking, too, uh, because other people, they'd seen it had been done. And I think that five-year difference is important for that reason. And I, I can give you documents on that, if you like. But at any event, uh, those countries were successful. It is almost impossible for anybody now to realize that Korea was the second poorest country in Asia in 1958. Least arable land per farmer of any country in the world. Ghana had a per capita income estimated to be 22 times that of Korea in 1950. Thank you.
Thank you. Uh, thank you, Anne. We now have time for uh, questions and answers. If you have a question, please raise your hand and identify yourself and your affiliation. And uh, wait for the mic when I call on you. We'll take the first question here in front, please. Go ahead. Okay, I, I, okay the, first, the first part of the question was, was METI? No, Japan. I mean, is that an exception or do they? Oh, I mean, I, I, I think it's the rule. I think, that I, I think that those who are trying to protect are looking backward. And I don't think that you can go forward by picking industries. So I think the industrial policy that we've seen throughout the world has either been of the kind that Korea had later on, namely we'll find out what's going wrong in the ports and the uh, power and so on and so forth, and whether there's a shortage of engineers, we'll increase engineering schools, which benefits everybody. Uh, and though that kind of industrial policy is fine. I mean, I, it, it's like regulation. There are some regulations that are okay. I firmly believe we should have a rule that everybody drive on the right or the left. You shouldn't have it unregulated. You know, I mean, that, so I mean, once you agree to that, you've got to agree there should be some regulation. The only question is what much, how much, and what kind. And I think the same is true. Of course, you want policies that increase. I think in the United States, we are doing terribly in terms of, for example, training. I think we need more. Is that industrial policy? I think it would be. But I mean, that doesn't make it right. But I think this backward-looking part of even what Miti did and what others did, but the Japanese were held up as the wonderful people who'd done so much with industrial policy, which is why I mentioned them. Does that answer? Also, if I may add, yeah, of course. Uh, uh, <laughs> book. There, there, there is a paper by uh, Weinstein and Beeson yep. and Weinstein, which actually shows that uh, when you look at it, the Japanese were subsidizing or promoting industries that did the worst, that performed the worst. And they tried to close, no, they, they, they tried to close down the auto industry. Yeah. And, and, and of course, there is an opposite interpretation that is given by Tatsu Hata once. He said to me, he said, well, what Miti guys were doing was looking at which industries were doing well and subsidize those. So the causation was flowing the other way that, you know, you, you look like you're really doing great work. Uh, but what you're doing is trying to going and giving subsidies to those industries that were first in doing very well in the first place. To your second question, I think the, the, the answer is often different for different countries. I'll say Indian case, I, which, I, which I understand a little better. To some degree, in the Indian case, I see the, the, the uh, echoes of the 1973 onwards of Korea. You know, when you open up, trade response, which happened in India, you know, from like uh, exports from 7% went to about 20%, imports from about 10% went to almost 30%. Suddenly then the policymakers begin to see that, oh, we are importing all these things, we could produce these domestically. And so the import substitution has the risk of returning. 
and and if the economists are not doing their job, or you know, in general, the, uh, those who understand the importance of uh, open markets are not doing their jobs, uh, which is the case in India, then I think you know the policymakers push it through. Could I uh, just ask a quick supplement, which is that uh, is the bugbear of China uh, responsible? What role is no, they China use it. it gets used. That, oh, look, Chinese are, this is the same, you know, the kinds of arguments that Hajun Chang and Danny Roderick are making that, oh, China, China has succeeded because they're doing all this industrial policy. But, well, why were they not succeeding under Mao Zedong if that is the source of the success? I mean, they were doing all possible policies of both protection and industrial policy under Mao Zedong. But they failed miserably. So, uh, uh, but but that is the job. The the I, I think economists in India just don't do it. They're still in a way. If you look at it, economists except with with, with a very few exceptions uh, 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 in India are sitting on the other side. They all think their protection is good. Okay, we'll take a question in the back there, please. Jess Gupta, recently retired from Capital One. My question relates to that China, seems, China has done phenomenally, phenomenally well in the past three decades or so as it opened. But why currently, or recently, it seems to be turning back, overtly or covertly subsidizing various things, creating import substitutions in the areas, where they may not have core strength, but by either like stealing technology or doing all that. What are your views on this kind of apparent reverse? Thank you. So the two questions there, right? One is why it has slowed down. And, and perhaps the answer is very much uh, uh, the one that applies to some of the other countries, like South Korea and Taiwan. Why did they slow down? Um, you know, in the early stages when their income levels are very low, uh, there is a whole lot of catching up to do uh, uh, because you know your technology frontier is here, you are here. So in getting to the global technology frontier, you can really move up very fast. And I think I would. So you want why protection has returned? Sorry. Yeah. Why aren't they further opening? Yeah. Well, I think part of it has to do with the trade war that opened up. And uh, uh, they are thinking that uh, if, if the, who is going to blink. So this, this has turned more political, and I'll, I'll let Reza Krieger speak to that. OK, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Did you want to say anything? No. OK, we'll take another question. Uh, one back there. Thank you very much, and thanks for a great panel. My name is Marian Tupi. I work here at Cato. Uh, Dr. Kruger, the, um, the competition that you described between the Taiwanese and the South Koreans, uh, where did that come from, and uh, why don't we see that kind of policy competition and policy outcome competition in other parts of the world, like, for example, Sub-Saharan Africa or uh, Latin America? And Dr. Panagria, quick question for you. For the people who don't have the time to actually read books about uh, specifics of South Korean um, economic policy or Taiwanese economic policy, um, what do you think of the argument that 
basically just says what matters is the, uh, is the relative level of freedom. If everybody else is moving toward a closed economy and less free trade and more regulation, um, even if you do have a little bit of industrial policy, what matters is that you are moving in the opposite direction and therefore you're going to benefit and grow. Thank you. Sorry, sorry, can you clarify the question? I, I didn't understand the last part of it. It's relative. Question is, is, is it relative? If, if everybody else has a lot of industrial policy, if you have a bit less, won't you be better off than, and be able to grow this okay, fast? You have a bit less. Yeah, you have a So I think the first question was okay. probably for you. Okay. Well, on the, on the first question, uh, well, in the 1960s and 70s, Korea and Taiwan were growing so much more rapidly than anybody else that it was headlines worldwide. So in a sense that they knew, and they knew about each other, partly, I suppose, simply because they're in the same geographic area, uh, but partly simply because each of them saw the other as the only one growing as rapidly. The second part of your first question had to do with why, about, why doesn't this happen in other countries? It does. In Latin America, the, the tilt toward protection in the left was very heavy. Uh, the first country to break it was Chile. When Chile broke it, they broke it quite substantially. And Chile had been one of the high inflation, stop-go cycle, recession, balance of payments crises like Argentina still is. And for Chile, instead, they began a very rapid rate of growth. The interesting part of that was not only what it did for Chile, which was a lot, but that in fact, even the left-wing sentiment or the protectionist sentiment, call it what you will, the interventionist sentiment by government diminished even in the countries where it was strongest. It was still not necessarily opening up, but, it, but the degree of protection, the degree of intervention, the degree to which things that were, from an economist's point of view, ridiculous, at least diminished greatly when the, 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 the people who were advocating it had to answer to why is Chile doing so well. So I don't think that. In South Africa's case, well, the country has, I don't know for sure, but the country has such a different history and a different economic structure and so on than the others uh, and is in such a different place and started with such a, so much a higher per capita income than the other South African countries. Uh, that it isn't seen as that much of being like them. It's seen as being different for a whole variety of reasons. I'm not sure that's a good answer, but that would be what I would guess. So I'll also add to what Professor Krieger has said, that also in the Indian case, for instance, you know, learning did happen. It was very, very slow, meaning that when Taiwan and Korea were doing well, if you told the Indian policymakers and bureaucrats that, look, you know, how well they are doing, or Hong Kong and Singapore. So Hong Kong, Singapore, they'll say, well, they are just city-states, irrelevant. Even Korea, too small. We are too big. Then China opened up in 1980. And for 10 years, it grew 10%. That, I think, killed the argument, because China was bigger than India. It was a communist country. Uh, we were only a socialist country. We are not communist. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think that made a big difference. Uh, and not to mention the fact that, of course, Soviet Union collapsed also which had been the India's model in the 1950s. So that helped. Now to your second question, if I understood correctly, it's a, if I am open and, and you are not, but if you are a large market, still my opening is going to help me. Only extreme case where the rest of the world is completely closed and I open up, nothing will happen. It's opening up is not going to hurt me, it will also not help me because the rest of the world is in autarky, so I can't trade with anybody. 
But as long as there is some opening up, I mean, think of Korea and Taiwan in the 60s and 70s, really, that's what happened. They're the countries that actually managed to open up during that period, uh, even though the US and Europe had not fully opened up in the way that they are open today. Hong Kong. They were able to succeed, and Hong Kong was completely open, complete free trade. Yeah, so yeah. for smaller countries, it's very, uh, you know. Yeah. If I could just add, uh, opening up, even if, even if other countries have high tariff barriers, but you can still import. What that does, in a way, is give competition to your producers. And especially for the smaller countries, that's hugely important. Because if you try and sort of insulate yourself as well, you're giving a few people, either, either you're giving a few people domestic monopolies, or you're going to, as some countries have tried to do, say, we want competition, we must have at least four firms doing this. So each of them, instead of being one-tenth of the ideal size, becomes one twenty-fifth of the ideal size. It's not a good situation either way. So that, in effect, in a, in competition does some good things, even when protection in the rest of the world is high. And in fact, my optimism about the longer term not going the way the US is going right now basically is that those countries that don't follow the US will come out ahead and do better, and people will eventually see it. Mm. Uh, question here. Uh, Doug Brooks, uh, International Stability Operations Association. Uh, my question, this is a great discussion, but almost all the examples, or all the examples are essentially post-World War II. Uh, of course, there had been a big trade boom pre-World War I, uh, and I wonder if there are any examples from then that are used by economists to demonstrate the value of free trade. Well, the big example is used is Great Britain, which was the first industrial power and the first to open up. And the Brits went to free trade, then Germany followed, and they own, I mean, they were the big ones. So that I, th I think that that's economic history, which I don't know as well as I do post-World War II. But certainly, uh, all the conventional wisdom, and they, as, as, as Professor Pantagoria said, uh, Adam Smith, and then Ricardo led to the abolition of the court laws, et cetera, in Britain, and it was the first industrial power. Question right here in the center. Do I need to get up? <laughs> I guess, okay. Um, well, one uh, comment on... Uh, Could you just identify yourself, please? I'm sorry? Identify yourself. Oh, sorry, sorry. Maurice Schiff, I... Used to be a colleague of Arvind Panagaria uh, okay. at the World Bank. Okay. And uh, now I'm retired, so that's why I come to meetings and stuff like that, <laughs> <laughs> just to ask questions. So anyway, um, uh, one on on China, there was protectionists start to grow ten percent, and people say you need more protectionists, but they liberalized, and the rate of growth did not change. I think that's relative to all your other arguments and Anne's argument. It's a bit weak because all it says here is, is that opening to trade did not reduce the rate of growth, which is not exactly the same as saying that it's very important to raise the rate of growth of the economy, right? You said 10% it didn't grow, but it didn't decrease over time as they liberalized. It's not as strong as saying that it you know, grew over time because of the opening. But anyway, but that's not a major point. The, the, the question is, or the thought is that liberalizing in the different rounds of the GATT, because it was done more or less around similar countries, developed ones, maybe was much easier for the rich countries, let's say, than when a generally developing countries opened up, who specialized, of course, as for a long time and still 
many on labor-intensive and very cheap labor-intensive exports, which, of course, affected <coughs> in many ways uh, industry in the developed countries. And so there you have a bit of the opposite. Uh, I mean, we know about theories about distribution of wealth and income and impact on institutions and trust, etc. And whether or not that round of liberalization of developing countries, whether that might have had an impact on how policies or people feel about free trade in the developed countries, which are still the large part of the world market, let's say, and whether that then can influence back and hurt then again the, you know, the, the ones who opened up. I mean, it's a very complicated thing, but uh, yeah. I wonder if you could address that. I can say something you want. Yes. The biggest degree of protection in industry, the biggest degree of protection against unskilled labor in, in, in the, among the developed countries was, of course, textiles and apparel, which is highly unskilled labor, et cetera, et cetera. Guess what happened in 2003? All the quantic quotas went. It was the other way around. The developed countries opened up their markets for unskilled labor unbelievably uh, as the process continued. Uh, it's counterfactual to sort of say that uh, they could increase protection when those imports came in because, in fact, the multi-fiber agreement went. It disappeared. It doesn't exist anymore. And yet it was the biggest single thing uh, that gave protection uh, for industrial countries against unskilled labor imports. The same is true actually for shoes, and the same is true for, I think, TVs. I'm not sure of a couple of others, but I think for a few more of the unskilled labor things, where indeed the developed countries among themselves unilaterally reduced tariffs to the big benefit and more open markets for the developing countries. So the, to use the argument that the developing countries are going to get more protectionist, I don't think works. How has uh, liberalization in poor countries affected the political economy in rich countries? Well, that's one that everybody spends hours and hours and hours debating right at the moment, of course. But I, I, what, at least in my view, you just can't make the numbers add up to say that that's a big part of things. Yeah. Just on the, your first observation, you know, since you're trying to, your usual way of trying to put in some skepticism here. Uh, uh, <laughs> Let me, let me just say, this is a debate that did happen, at, you know, like Robert Wade was arguing this, that, you know, given that Korea had this industrial policy and still grew 8%, uh, uh, industrial policy must have helped rather than hurt, because if you assume that it actually hurt, then not having it would have meant even higher growth. To which Ian Little sort of replied that, why does Wade think that uh, uh, growth could not have been higher because Taiwan and uh, Hong Kong, Singapore were, were more open and actually grew faster. And today's time, you know, you can take India and China, and certainly China was far more open than in, in than India. And certainly, the, if you look particularly from the export performance and all, uh, there's no comparison. India has grown slower than China. I would argue that if China had not continued to open up uh, and given space. And here, opening up meaning not only trade, but also you know, uh, domestically giving the entrepreneurs this kind of space that they need. Um, I think Chinese growth rate would have, in the 90s and 2000s, uh, declined. OK. Uh, we'll take the, the question here in the aisle and come in there. Good afternoon. My name is Tina Galati. Uh, no affiliation, fortunately. 
Um, <laughs> I have a question whether a rising tide lifts all boats. So, for example, with um, for China and the Belt and Road Initiative and with developing countries in Africa. So does prior history show that when a country does become more developed, such as Taiwan or South Korea, whether not just regionally, but in other regions that are lesser developed, if there's some spillover effects? The evidence really is that, um, uh, I mean, in, in a rough sense, Today, the OECD countries are much larger. Well, the global economy is much larger. And that makes it easier for the other countries that open up to do well. And certainly, uh, uh, you know, if you look at post about 1990s onwards, um, you see massive uh, liberalization. And the growth rates in the developing world are higher than ever before. There was that conventional view, again, you know, led by Danny Roderick and all that somehow in the 60s and early 70s, the developing countries grew a lot faster. Uh, but that actually is not empirically correct. Uh, it is the uh, uh, post-mid-1990s. And there is one chapter in my book which deals with Africa and Latin America. Only one exception that comes out really is Mexico, at least a puzzling. It's not an exception, but it's just a bit puzzling. That this is one case where Mexico opened up Trade also grew very rapidly, but the growth effects did not happen. And I explained there you know, what, what has gone wrong there. But otherwise, you look at Peru, you look at uh, uh, some of the African countries across the board, you know, this, uh, this trade effect you, you see coming through. Uh, and, and certainly today, because the market is much larger, uh, all other countries as your potential importers are much larger, that helps. Even though, so therefore, you know, Sometimes this argument gets made that, you know, the, oh, the global growth, this is a very popular argument in India, for instance, that, oh, global economy is not doing so well, and therefore our growth cannot do very well. But look, you know, if you got 1.7% share in the global merchandise exports, and that export market is 17 trillion, what does it matter whether that market is growing by another trillion or two or not? What matters is can you do things within your own country well enough? Uh, 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 rejig your policy regime so that you just from 1.7% share go to 3%. And, and that's what matters. You might just take a look at the statistics on growth rates in developing countries and developed countries over time separately. And think, for example, of the Great Recession 2007-2008. Almost all the developing countries experienced growth reduction. The one exception was China, which was because they poured on a hugely massive fiscal expansion, which is still, is still giving them fits because they've gotten over that. But except for that, look around the world and see who got hit. And the timing differs a bit because of oil prices and stuff. But in general, uh, I, could, I would argue that the most important thing the developed countries did for the developing countries in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s was increasing trade, increasing openness among the developed countries, which gave those developing countries that wanted to the market when they began being willing to use it. There is another a separate aspect of lifting of all boats, which is that you know, when a country opens up and grows rapidly, does everybody benefit? And by and large, at least you know, the Indian case I have studied very carefully, if you take the groups within the country, it lifts all, all, all boats. I mean, you can look at in India, you know, the Hindus, Muslims, uh, uh, other religions, or by uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the scheduled caste, scheduled tribes. You can, you can 
you know, slice their data whichever way you want. But doesn't when rapid help, growth happens. Doesn't it help the poorest more in a disproportionate Sorry. way? Does it help the poorest in those countries? In a hmm? dispropor doesn't it help the poorest in a more uh, disproportionate way because their income, uh, they have lower income and they spend more on basic but, basic goods that can but be. But that's not the point. They're poor because they're not open in general. Yes, I, I understand that. But but the benefits uh, go to everybody, but especially to the poor. It seems to me in Africa or other places that uh, uh, where the populations are subject to the monopolies and so on, they raise prices. Yeah. They're bad. Their their expenses are disproportionately high in, in in terms of food and clothes and everything else that. But Korea was the second poorest country yes, in the world. Exactly. Uh, I mean, we're not dealing with countries that were very, middle income to start with. We're dealing with yeah. the ones that were very poor, and indeed, there is even a literature, which I'm sure you know better than I do, uh, on why there is a resource curse. Namely, some of the poor countries yeah. have relied on resources and therefore haven't moved their policies in ways that they would have had they had to compete, and they would have been much better off to do so. I don't think that there would have been this growth of the global middle class without free trade, freer trade. Sorry? I don't think there would have been this growth of the global middle class, which has occurred in yeah, the last right. several decades, without freer trade. Right, right. Agree with that. Agree with that. Yes. Petrovsky from Venezuela. You mentioned natural resources, and you also mentioned Chile. And Chile, when it really opened up, had the very good luck of copper prices falling down. So they got kick-started into the whole thing with it. We You're making my point. Yep. <clears throat> so how would you phrase all these comments in relation to a country that it has oil revenue curse, let's say, and keeps the exchange rate extremely high uh, and makes it hard to compete? Does that matter or does that not matter? Would you make a special case on it or not? Oh, I mean, we talk about the D Dutch disease or the resource curse, uh, and there's no doubt Russia actually is a big resource-rich country that is therefore not doing anything in the other sector. But I think I think the cause, in my guess, I've done enough systematically to say for sure. But it seems to me the causation goes from you've got enough revenue for the government or what have you in the natural resources that therefore you do not do other things. Now the, the obvious answer is something. <coughs> like a sovereign wealth fund, or increased investment, and so on and so forth, <coughs> or leave the resources in the private sector. So you got the example of Botswana. Yeah. Diamond, I mean, diamond was like oil, and, and uh, they invested <coughs> it well, so they did well. Okay, we have time for at least one, uh, one or two more questions. We'll take one in the back. <coughs> Hi, uh, John Mueller from Cato and from Ohio State. Around 1970, both James Buchanan and uh, uh, Milton Friedman wrote articles very depressed from their standpoint about the future of international trade. Their argument is not so much an economic one, but a political one, namely that people who know they're going to be hurt, uh, people who, who are going to be hurt by trade know who they are, and people who are going to be helped by trade don't know who they are. So the logic from the politics is that it's not going to open up. I'm sure they'd be extremely happy to see what actually happened <laughs> uh, and be happy to say they're wrong. But why were they wrong? I mean, why, why has there been this growth? Because the argument is obviously a very solid one uh, intellectually. Personally, I would say that you know when good things happened because of the opening up of these, some of these countries, at least in the developing countries, 
people like Anne played a huge role. Uh, I, I, I think you know the the whole movement in the 70s, intellectual movement in the 70s, turning in favor of uh, uh, outward orientation, uh, that made a big difference. Uh, and you know, I also think that at least political economy-wise, often if you can convince the leadership, things can happen. Even in democracies, if if leadership is believes in it. Uh, at least I know the Indian case very well, and, and it, it was really the rec leadership recognizing that you know something we are not doing right. Uh, once you do that, it, it, it just gets going. So. Yeah, but there, there's, I think, another factor as well, and that is uh, the degree to which, first off, there is some kind of a reasonable rate of growth, if you like, of the opportunities. Uh, and in American history, until about 1980, uh, the rate of growth of the more educated groups, some college, all college, and so on, was much was rapid enough so that the relative between that and the unskilled was falling, not rising. About 1980, that stopped happening, which tells you that the supply was growing more rapidly than the demand, or there are too many unskilled is another way to say it. Now, one, one way of handling part of that is, of course, uh, better training, better technical education, and so on and so forth. And I think we, the US, missed that. But there was very early on an article, which I thought was very good, uh, a very little model. Imagine a country where everybody's a poor peasant. Now you want to grow. You've got to build a first, I don't know, fertilizer factory or something, whatever it's going to be, clothing factory. And maybe it'll take 200 workers. Income inequality will increase. And at the first stages of growth, it's going to happen if you've got this uniform. And if you worry only about inequality and say you won't do anything that will increase it at all, you'll never grow. Now, that's extreme, and it's just a little model. But nonetheless, it's worth thinking about, because obviously, even the people who were on farms in the US weren't always happy when the farm prices fell and so on. But they could move to the cities in droves. And they were educated enough so that most of them could find better work within a short time, not necessarily right away. And it seems to me that what's happening, in my view in India, is that the biggest single thing they've done, which is almost a crime against humanity, is they bottled up so many people in the countryside without enough opportunities in the city because they've got rigid labor laws, so everybody gets a job has to get. The company has to provide the education, the health service, and everything else. So those jobs aren't cheap. The result is 5% of the workforce is in the formal sector. Yeah. We'll take one last question over here. Thank you for this talk. I'm Danielle Parks from the Mercatus Center. And so my question is more so, there's a consensus that trade is very beneficial, especially in the long term. Prices fall, there's more variety of goods, and the latter that um, it's just more efficient and the country can use its resources. But my problem is, what about to the so-called so losers, the ones that after you open up trade, they aren't able to change their jobs because of the training programs, those sorts of things. Um, so these individuals, it's considered or structural unemployment now. And how do you solve these issues? I mean, there are like the TAA programs, but those seem to be inefficient. Um, the CPTPP has done delayed decreases in tariffs, and that's been one way to help with this issue. How, in your opinion, is the best way to solve the issue of the so-called losers when you open up trade? Well, again, we're way off Arvind's book at the moment. But, but in, my, in my view, the, the big problem has been, and it was an economist's mistake, actually, was they knew that open trade was a good thing. They bought the argument that the losers know who they are and the winners don't, et cetera, et cetera. So they've got put into place something called trade adjustment assistance. 
Now, your question illustrates it perfectly. You asked about the losers in trade. What difference does it make whether a guy loses his job in a shoe factory because the management was incompetent, or because the union is so strong that the shoe factory moves south, or because of trade? Same unemployment. In, in my view, we should treat citizens according to their situation, not according to cause. But if you could do the best econometric, or the better than they exist, econometric study in the world, and you took a study of the unemployed people who are, are going to go right now, let's say from Ford, 7,000 laid off, what you'd find probably is Ford wasn't managing as well as GM a bit. You might find that Ford's location of some of its factories wasn't as good. You might find some other things. And finally, when you got it done, you'd find that, well, OK, 20% of the jobs of those 7,004, uh, i.e., 1,400 were due to trade, 300 were due to poor management, 900. Well, how are you going to identify which 1,200 they are? And why do you want to? And if you don't want to, you, a factory doesn't close just because of trade. Usually, it's the weaker factories in, in that particular industry uh, that do so. And th that's been true for ages and ages. It's nothing new. Uh, and the, this fixation on these people, I'm sympathetic with them, but I think the, the answer has to be more than simply trade adjustment. It has to be adjustment for people who were hurt. What are the biggest threats to trade today? Hmm? What are the biggest threats to trade today? Where are they coming from to free, or to free well, trade? There, there is no question but that the myth that is jobs has some degree of persuasion, persuasion of power. Uh, it's well, look. Uh, there was a report, I think, in this morning's paper, yesterday morning's paper, that the estimate so far is that, yes, there probably are about 1,400 more workers still employed in producing washing machines and dryers than there would have been at the cost per year of $800,000 per worker. $800,000 per worker per year to keep a few people. And th th those washing machines are going to go anyway. It's a question of keeping one for a few years. Why pay that and not put half or a quarter of that resources into something else? But the, job, the appeal of the jobs, even when it isn't there, was a guy named Steve McGee way back when in the 1970s did his dissertation in Chicago. And he took a look and he said, all these guys, these companies that said, we're going to have to lay off workers and wait unless we get help. Turned out, in fact, that what, if they did get help, they had more profits and there were no more workers. <laughs> ah. I mean, look at the profit figures coming out now. And it's not more steel workers. It's not more auto workers. It's more profits. It is the capitalists who have the, the workers can move. And the thing is to help them move and let the capitalists take, take a loss, my view. You convinced me. Thanks very much for joining us. And please help me thank our speakers today.